Jugcast, not nominated for an Oscar, with Libby Jones, Philippa Hartley, Indy Leclerc, Ian MacDonald, Christina Smith, and Chris Wallace. The Jugcast, January 2013 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Christina Smith and joining me in the studio today are Indy Leclerc and new Jodcaster Chris Wallace. Hi guys. Hello. Hey there. Chris is one of this year's new PhD students here. So Chris, can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing? So I'm working on uh, cosmology. We're working on the experimental side, so we're trying to develop a new analysis pipeline for new types of telescopes which will be built in the future, anywhere between like five and ten years, so... So you're looking at software or hardware or... Yeah, so the software that you'd need be required to actually analyse what happens when you take the measurements from the telescope and be able to actually transfer that into scientific questions. Cool, cool. So what, what kind of future telescopes would be using like what you're doing? So one of the main ones we're planning to use this kind of analysis on is LSPE, the Large Scale Polarisation Explorer, which is a telescope being built in Rome. And it's going to be put on a balloon and it's going to measure the cosmic microwave background from within the Arctic Circle. That kind of telescope is subtly different to previous telescopes and so it will require more careful analysis. Okay, that was really interesting. Huh? In the show this time, we talk to Dr Stuart Lumsden about young stellar objects and Dr Ian MacDonald answers our astronomical questions. But first, before all of that, Libby talks to Professor Peter Wilkinson about the Manchester University Student Telescope. Hello, joining me on the Jogcast today is Professor Peter Wilkinson from the University of Manchester. Hello and welcome to the Jogcast. Hi. And you've been working on a new telescope and at the moment it's being built on top of buildings in the centre of Manchester. Can you tell us about this project and how you built it? Yes, well at the moment it's called the Manchester University Student Telescope, MUST, which is rather an amusing title since we must build it and I'm, I'm sure we will. The idea is to try and build something that is low cost but can do fantastic science. And at the moment, we're in a learning and prototyping phase. But eventually, we want to put a very large number of these um, panels of antennas out on the Jodrell Bank site and, uh, and have a new live science experiment out at Jodrell Bank. And what type of frequency of radiation are you observing with these telescopes? Are they optical? Are they radio? This is very much a radio experiment. And indeed, some people might say we're... Uh, we're, we're rather silly because we're trying to observe right in the middle of a television band. Uh, the television band, for those of you who don't know, is around about uh, 600 megahertz, which is a, a wavelength of 50 centimeters, so a couple of feet. The reason why we're trying to observe there is because you can buy stuff, kit, very, very cheaply, since in the television band it's uh, manufactured in the millions, of course. And even though we're now uh, moving towards a higher frequency television with satellite receiver uh, on the side of your house. There's still an awful lot of antennas on the top of your chimneys. They're called Yagi antennas, those long thin sticks with crosses across them, uh, receiving uh, standard television, and we're making use of an awful lot of those. In fact, at the moment, I just received uh, 330 of them from a television manufacturer in Sheffield, and we're getting trying to get funding for it at the moment. There'll be 6,500 of these on uh, on the Jodrell Bank site, all pointing up at the sky, held up by frames, really like bedsteads, made out of um, glass fibre, they call it GRP, about six metres by three metres, each of which will have uh, 64 of these television aerials 
connected together by cables, and then that looks like the 1950s technology. But the 21st century technology is all the digital processing and computer processing that's going to make this thing come alive. So at the moment, how many telescopes do you have that's been built, or are you trying to... Well, at the moment, we have one on a roof of a building in Manchester, which is uh, just about about to be reassembled, assembled for the first time and tested. And we're um, we're just collecting together the uh, not the technology but the the bits for another four. They will go on the Jodrell Bank site next summer. So we'll be testing this one on the building roof uh, over the course of the next few months. And next summer we'll we'll put four together on the Jodrell Bank site and then connect them together with this high high powered computing stuff. And approximately how much do each one of these things cost to build? Well, that's the, that's the thing we're trying to do. It's rather amusing that uh, you can buy um, an awful lot of gain with a television antenna for about £12. We're trying to make it, it's an interesting number, the cost of a super-duper uh, radio telescope like the Jodrell Bank one, but a more modern version, always works out at something like £10,000 or €10,000 per square metre of surface. Now, when you've got a lot of square meters, like the Jodrell Bank one has uh, 4,500 square meters of surface, you can work out that it would cost you 40 to 50 million pounds to build Jodrell Bank again. Originally, it cost a lot less than a million, but inflation has been such that it would now cost 40 to 50 million. What we're trying to do here is to build a telescope for 1 or 2% of that cost. So we're trying to build something with rather comparable area, but perhaps in eventually for costing about a million pounds or maybe three quarters of a million pounds but for many thousands of square meters so each of them is going to cost a few hundred pounds per square meter that's what we're trying to get down to and that's uh that's really quite a challenge but it's an exciting challenge and you said this was going to operate in the television wavelengths how do you stop interference because obviously television is going to be everywhere well, that's a good point. Fortunately, it turns out that in the television wavelengths, because of the switchover from analog to digital, there are chunks of the TV band that used to be full and now not quite so full as they were before because the digital signals have gone up to somewhat higher frequencies. So there are, at least temporarily, at least for maybe five years, maybe a little bit longer, gaps in the band that we are, nature abhors a vacuum and radio astronomers saw an opportunity and we're, we're trying to fill that gap. But there'll always be signals there. There'll always be distant TV there. And uh, so the trick of this telescope is not to try and do everything. We're aiming to do just one type of science, and that's to look at these things called pulsars, which are these rotating neutron stars left over from a, a star that's gone bang, a supernova. And their pulses, they're pulsed on time scales from seconds to milliseconds. So from rotating around at a few seconds and some of them are rotating around nearly a thousand times a second which is rather remarkable without going to the astrophysics the main point is that they are a very special type of signal they're pulsed and they also have other characteristics that enable them to enable us to recognize them from all the rubbish that mankind's generating so it's because we're looking at a very special type of radio source and which jodrell bank has a fantastic 40 years of experience of doing indeed observing in this band for pulsars, that we can be confident that even though we're observing in the midst of lots of man-made interference, we can still do a good job on pulsars. If we were trying to do other types of science, just trying to look at the the total power coming from a source, then the TV signals coming and going would, would mess us up completely. Because we're looking for a very special type of signal. 
this regular pulse. This pulsar, regular pulses. Yeah. Or indeed, um, one of the other exciting things we try to look for is things, other things going bang in the sky. We don't know, as radio astronomers, whether there is a, a whole load of possible objects which are exploding and, uh, and giving a transient flare of radio emission. Whereas in the optical band, your eye is a fantastically good receiver. Your eye is uh, the Mark I eyeball, as they used to call it in the, in the Air Force. If there was a, a star went bang or a comet came in, you would see it. Or you could help your eye with a pair of binoculars and improve your sensitivity by a factor of 100. So there are people all over the world scanning the skies with their eyeballs, but particularly with binoculars. So if anything happens, somebody will notice it. But in the radio, we don't have the equivalent of that. We don't have a panoramic view. And so one of the things this telescope is trying to do is to is to observe systematically with a big wide field of view and see if there's anything going bang that we didn't know about, as well as looking for pulsars. So it's a, it's a dual role. So we're looking for very special signals, that's the point. So even though there's lots of TV around, because you're only looking for special types of signals, then you can live with it. Plus the fact that we, there's a little spectrum that's, uh, that uh, TV signals have gone out of, at least temporarily. So you're very quick to exploit this because the digital switchover is still just happening. How long has this concept been thought about? Well, the concept has been around for, we, we thought about this idea for nearly 10 years ago. We nearly got started 10 years ago. We got some initial funding. And for various reasons, which now don't seem quite so sensible as they did at the time, we dropped it. And the, the whole point of the telescope was to do great science, but it was also to enable us to learn about how to process data from the huge new telescope that's coming 10 years from now called the Square Kilometre Array. Uh, the Square Kilometre Array, two of its big science goals, or one of its big science goals is to observe pulsars and to find pulsars around black holes and to test gravity, gravitational theories and all sorts of other weird and wonderful things, which you can only do if you can time these pulsars incredibly accurately. So we, we decided we should set up a, an experiment that we could do at Jodrell Bank that would uh, train us and enable us to do some of the precursor science to this huge telescope that's coming in the 2020s. Uh, we dropped it, but now we suddenly realized a couple of years ago, well, that was still a very good idea. So we've uh, we've reinvented it, and now with this interesting idea of getting students to work on it. So we have students in the Jodrell Bank uh, Observatory and Jodrell Bank Center for Astrophysics, but we've also got students who have worked on it on mechanical engineering to design these frames, electrical engineering to help us with the design of the Yagis, uh, civil engineering have helped us with the part of the frames and will help us with uh, how to measure them, measure their positions when they're out on the Jodrell Bank site. So we're getting people from all over the university, and no doubt eventually we'll have people in computer science, because one of the final goals is to allow the public access to the data. So we have this, it's called citizen science, isn't it? You can, uh, we'd love to let the public analyze some of the data. So they can sit at home and see if they can find pulsars or see if they can find uh, extraterrestrial intelligence. Not that we're expecting to find extraterrestrial intelligence. But if you observe systematically over and over and over again, you'll find signals that uh, you wouldn't do if you were just waving your telescope all over the sky. That's how pulsars were discovered in the first place. It was whether a telescope 40 years previous to this just fixed looking at the sky. And because they were looking at the same part of the sky over and over again, they recognized that some signals that they thought were interference were in fact repeating not every 24 hours, but every 23 hours, 56 minutes, which is how fast the time the Earth goes around with respect to the stars. 
we go around with respect to the sun every 24 hours, but the respect to the stars, 23 hours, 56 minutes. So it was because they were looking very systematically at the same bits of sky day after day after day. You see things you otherwise wouldn't. So that's one of the that's one of the many goals of this experiment. But fundamentally, pulsars and, and transient events, things going bang. And it's all been done in-house at the University of Manchester with the different departments? It is at the moment, and certainly for the first um, for the first phase, you can do it at the a few tens of thousands of pounds so far. If this all works, what we're uh, one of my colleagues in uh, Pulsar scientist, Dr. Ben Stappers, uh, is hoping to to raise a much bigger sum of money, closer to a million euros, to build the final instrument. How rare is it that one university can build an entire telescope from concept to completion? These days, increasingly rare, because. Big science is now forcing you to go to uh, multi-university or, of course, huge international. The SKA is an enormous international project. You're going to cost several billion euros eventually. Even university-university projects now tend to cost, I don't know, five to ten million pounds if you want to study the microbe background or invent a, a, a new type of uh, radio receiver to do something. So that's the whole point of this. We're trying to force the costs down by choosing to observe in a band where you can buy things cheaply. And so we're trying to use, in some sense, in, in terms of technology, relatively, crude is the wrong word, but uh, very mature technologies, except for the digital processing at the back end, and that's going to be 21st century. But we're trying to use the technology of the 1950s, you might say, to drive the costs down for the collecting area, and then attach to that the technology of the 20, 2010s or 2020s to uh, take the data from the telescopes and uh, let you look at a huge range of areas that you couldn't otherwise do. So it's a, a wonderful, I like to think it's a wonderful combination of the, the old and the new. Brilliant. Thank you very much for joining us and telling us all about this telescope. My pleasure. Thanks for that, Libby. Now we have Philippa and Libby talking to Dr. Stuart Lumsden about the MSX survey of young stellar objects. Joining me on Jogcast today, I have Stuart Lumsden from Leeds University. Hi, Stuart. Hi. Hello, welcome to Jogcast. Today you've been here to talk about the Red MSX Source Survey. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, please? Okay, the Red MSX Source Survey is something we've been doing for about a decade now, in which we're looking for all the very young, massive stars in our galaxy. So these are stars which basically are still in the process of forming. They're they're not uh, the big sort of bright things you see in the sky. They're things which are heavily embedded in sort of molecular clouds in which they're formed. And we're trying to find all of these in the galaxy down to a certain mass. So these are things which are ranging from 10 times the mass of the sun up to perhaps 100 times the mass of the sun. Uh, and what uh, proportion of stars do these particular stars make up? They're not very many. So we've, in, in the end, we found perhaps 2,000 objects. Um, this is out of a population of many billions of stars in the galaxy. So this is a relatively small sort of set of things we're looking at. But because they're massive, um, massive stars basically are much, much brighter than stars like our sun. So you can see them much further away. So despite the fact there are not very many of them, they're actually quite easy to find. And how do these massive stars differ from what we might call normal stars? Um, in s several different ways. So massive stars, in terms of what we're looking for, are things that shake up the galaxy around them in lots of different ways. So they have really strong radiation fields. Um, the, the nearest massive star to us, which people might be familiar with, can actually see themselves as Sirius, which is actually at the lower end of the scale of these things. It's a star which is 
bright and blue, really strong in the ultraviolet. Um, all that ultraviolet light basically can disrupt the material around them, it can create uh, big bubbles, uh, and when they get to the end of their life, these stars turn to supernovae and go bang. And do the same again, they just deposit lots of metals in the galaxy. We're all made of bits of supernovae. All the iron in our bodies essentially is coming from these stars. Cool. Um, and they also drop lots of energy, so they, they shake the galaxy up a lot. And we think that all galaxies essentially uh, evolve due to the activity of either the mass of stars they have, or a completely different area of research, the big black holes that sit at the centre of them. And you're using the mid-infrared spectrum to find these objects. Why infrared? Um, because these things are in their molecular clouds, they're actually hidden from optical light. You can't see them at all. The uh, molecular gas essentially comes a lot with a lot of dust. Dust is like, in terms of opacity, clouds in our atmosphere. Mm -hmm. they, it has the same sort of property. Whereas when you look in the infrared, you can start to see through these things. Um, they, the way this works for clouds in the atmosphere is exactly the same as for dust in uh, space, that once the light basically gets, its wavelengths gets bigger than the particles of dust, or the particles of the rain that form the clouds, it just appears transparent to it, so it goes straight through. So essentially we, we see these things in the sort of mid-infrared because the light comes straight out. Um, in the optical, it just gets trapped by the dust and gets excites the dust, the dust heats up, and it's actually the dust that radiates in the mid-infrared. It's the dust, excited dust, essentially, that's causing the radiation. Can the massive stars be mistaken for anything else? Yes, their properties we see in the mid-infrared are actually not dissimilar from lots of other types of stars as well. So a star appears in the mid-infrared essentially because it's got dust around it, and that dust's re-radiating. You can have dust when stars are in sort of molecular clouds when they're young, um, and you can also have dust, if a star is getting old, it throws off some of its material, and that dust forms the material being thrown off the star. So these, these are the main sort of contaminants for things which are at the other end of their lives. Um, the way in which we can tell these things apart is that the young ones, they're forming in molecular clouds. Molecular clouds should show up as uh, molecular gas. Molecular gas, there's things like carbon monoxide, for example, and that gives off characteristic sort of radiation, which we can detect. So you look for this radiation. Also, massive stars, when they're forming, they like company, so they form with sort of other massive stars. You can see this really easily when you look at images, basically just tell that there's lots of things going on in the field. Uh, the more evolved stars tend to be more isolated. They've sort of wandered away from where they first formed. They, uh, they're sitting there on their own, doing their own thing. They, they get to the end of their life at very different times compared to all things forming at the same time at the start, so that they, they're they not all going to reach the same stage as to get to the end of their life at the same time. So essentially you get this one infrared little source there sitting looking fairly isolated and lonely. And those are the evolved stars. So if it looks like it's got lots of uh, noxious molecular gas and it's f f sort of sitting inside a little group of other objects, it's probably young. Cool. And what do the results tell you about massive star formation? A variety of things. There, there's been a, a big issue as to how massive stars form for quite a long time now. We we sort of understand how stars the size of our sun form. They basically form from gas just collapsing in on itself. That gas heats up just from the sort of like the gravity sort of pulling it together. Eventually, it heats up enough. It starts to sort of burn hydrogen in its core, and it turns into a star. The problem with massive stars is that by the time they get to the stage where their cores started to burn the hydrogen, they also give off lots of radiation, and that radiation can drive away the material which is trying to fall into them. So they stop growing. So you end up with another solar mass star, where you don't end up with big stars again. And 
There are ways around this theoretically, which involve forming stars through what are called accretion disks. And these are just uh, things that look like discus around the star. Uh, it looks like sort of the rings of Saturn or something like that. And the material comes in through the disk and gets into the star's surface. So rather than just falling in from all angles, it comes in only along that midplane. And that helps because all the material that's falling in shields the material that's further out, so it's not being driven away by the radiation. All the radiation escapes in all the directions where the disk isn't and essentially gives you uh, a means of forming massive stars. However, there are various ways to get the stars to that stage, which are still sort of like disputed as to how this happens. And if we don't actually understand how these things form, then our understanding of why these things are going bang and turning into supernova and driving all the galaxy evolution is still very limited. Why, for example, do we only see stars which are perhaps 100 times the mass of the sun? Why not 1,000 times the mass of the sun? What stops it growing? This, this is sort of like the key to what we're actually after. Does it tell us anything about galaxy evolution as well? Yeah, because uh, massive stars essentially are one half of what's driving galaxy evolution. Mm. The, as mentioned earlier, the other half are the sort of big black holes that can form in their centres. Mm. These two go along together in the sense that if you have lots of gas, you can form massive stars, but you can also fuel a big black hole. Mm. Um, they probably evolve in a very similar fashion, what we don't fully understand yet is the exact linkages between these two. If when you look out at uh, sort of galaxies far away from us, very young in the very young universe when things were much more active, uh, you can see there's lots of star formation. You can see there's big black holes, but the exact sequencing of which came first, the black hole, the stars, which what stops it happening because the black holes seem to stop growing after a while, and galaxies stop stop forming stars. Which one happens first? Which one happens second? We don't really know. So, understanding the whole process of massive star formation may actually give us a clue to how this whole thing should work. When massive stars form, do they form in isolation with one massive star, for instance, in a cluster? Does that dominate it, or is there lots of big massive stars all forming together? Short answer is we don't know. To be sure, um, it is true that. If you have a cluster of stars and there's one which is more massive than the others, even by, say, a 50 solar mass star and a 40 solar mass star, most of the activity will be dominated by the 50 solar mass star because they they behave in a fashion where what you see from them, their radiation and all the rest of it, doesn't go up linearly with mass. It's basically scaling as a strong power law of the, the mass. So essentially, the most massive one really, really is important, especially for a lot of the ways in which we see things. So if people are thinking about um, pictures of the Orion Nebula, for example, our nearest massive star formation region, in which you see all this sort of lovely red gas, which is ionised gas being sighted by the stars, the big, the biggest star basically dominates that process completely. It's the most important thing there. You can measure how many of the others there are there, but they're not nearly as important. So big, th big things win out. And how do feedback processes in these clusters work to regulate star formation? Very good question. <laughs> um, again, this is one which I would hope from our survey we'll get a better answer to, but at the moment we don't really know. There's another theory for how massive stars essentially form, which is that once the first ones form, you keep forming more because um, as, they, as these things are sort of evolving, they evacuate space around them, which means they're compressing gas, which is further away from them. And as that gas gets compressed it turns into molecular clouds, which can then form new stars. So it's a possibility that massive stars, just by their very existence, form more massive stars. Uh, on the other hand, you have to have something which creates these stars in the first place. This is not a never-ending process. You can't go back to like, the first star and say, well, what created that? Something must cause them to sort of form in the first place. And we don't know the uh, 
the difference between uh, essentially this what's called the uh, triggered star formation where something else caused it to happen and things where basically just a, a large cloud of gas has collapsed uh, these are still sort of live issues in terms of how all stars form to be honest you mentioned there the formation of the first stars and uh, what we know from these is these are very very massive originally how does this relate to what you're picking up in the mxx survey we think the reason the first stars are so massive is because they have no none of what astronomers call metals um, and metals for astronomers is anything heavier than helium so these stars are basically formed just of hydrogen and helium that's important because most of the way in which stars are limited in their size nowadays is actually down to the metals they have in them, particularly iron. And what actually happens is the radiation pressure from within the inside the star itself acts on the iron to drive off the outer layers. Massive stars are really unstable things. If you added up any more mass in there, it would just basically keep throwing it away. The ultimate example of this is of a star in our galaxy, which the most massive star we know of in our galaxy is Eta Carina, which is possibly started as maybe as much as 150 solar masses but it's lost at least half that mass over its current lifetime. It just throws off lots and lots of stuff all the time because it's very unstable. Um, so we're looking for things which are probably less massive, rather more stable, much more like the mainstream of things that will go on to look like Orion, essentially. And the formation of these stars, you showed um, a very interesting plot that showed they followed the, the lanes in the galaxy. Can they not? Is that because there's more gas and dust there from which they form? The reason they sort of form the spiral arms in galaxies is perhaps down to the way in which the spiral arms themselves are set up. The the spiral arms, in a sense, are sort of vaguely transient phenomenon, but what you, what you get in galaxies is um, what are called spiral density waves. These are basically little gravitational perturbations that run around the galaxy all the time. So if you imagine essentially a whole bunch of gas, it's like a sort of shock wave coming through it, a wave crashing on the beach or something like that. It, it's basically more energised when this wave passes through. And because there's more stuff in the spiral arms, basically it gets a bit extra lift. So perhaps it causes the microclouds that are sitting in there, not doing very much, to actually collapse when this sort of wave passes through it. So you expect to get more stuff there, just because there's more stuff in the first place at some level. One of the interesting results as well you showed in your talk was that this, even though we have a smaller number of objects, we'll be able to trace a sequence of how the stars evolve um, and start forming. Can you elaborate a little bit more about these results, please? I can try. Um, there, there are various models for how these stars sort of evolve with time, which have been developed in recent years, which we think we can now actually show are correct. So the, the idea is that you st actually start with something which looks very like how low-mass stars form. So you've got a little thing that's sitting there, contracting under gravity, heating up as it's going. However, the difference between the low-mass star and the high-mass star is that the amount of material that's falling onto it at any given time is just much, much larger. So you get about a thousandth of the mass of the sun per year basically falling onto one of these things. It may not sound like there's very much there, but that's actually an awful lot of mass. And what happens when this falls onto a star, essentially, is that the star itself becomes unstable. It, it can't support this. And what it tries to do to remove that problem is it just swells up. And if it swells up, it becomes cooler because essentially there's now there's a limited amount of radiation in there to try and support the size of the star. If it's bigger, it can't be as hot. It's got to be cooler. Um, this has a characteristic sequence in the sense of stars like our Sun, which is only about 6,000 Kelvin or so, are able to support uh, magnetic activity near the surfaces. These are what give you the sort of sunspots um, and the solar wind as well. 
it's possible these forming higher mass stars have similar sorts of activity, but rather than having sunspots, because they're much bigger, much more energetic, they can actually drive off large jets of material. And these jets are things potentially we can detect um, through looking for sort of what are called outflows. These are basically uh, shot gas, which is sort of like streaming out in a fairly collimated fashion. Um, you see these in, from some low-mass stars and the optical from the Hubble Space Telescope. You get these long jets that sort of extend over huge amounts of space. Um, the same may be true for these high-mass stars during this brief time. Because eventually the star's going to stop being huge and puffed up because the material that's falling onto it starts to tail off. So essentially they shrink then back to being more like a massive star. They'll become hot again. And once they become hot again, they switch from having these sort of like magnetic behaviours near the surfaces to being something where it's only the radiation that matters. The radiation pressure basically acts on the gas again and it goes back to being like a normal hot star. You also showed that the rate that these stars actually gain mass and actually informing increases with time. Can you talk about that as well? Okay, this is something which... uh, it's one of the things we were trying to test is the various models for how massive stars form predict essentially whether or not you form the bulk of the star first and then it sort of tails off with time or you form a little thing first and then you sort of like increases with time. We think essentially we can show that the only models that work are things which the amount of mass they're sort of like taking in at any given time is increasing as they evolve. Uh, this sort of makes sense from a sort of simplistic physics point of view. As the, as the star is getting bigger, it's able gravitationally to pull in more and more stuff. So in one sense, it, it sounds like it's a sort of really easy thing to do. But of course, as it's getting bigger and it's evolving, it's running out of stuff to pull in. So there's some kind of trade-off here. And what it's saying is something about the, essentially the efficiency with which stars form in any given clump. So if you've got a little clump of gas out which the star's forming, we know for generically for all star formation regions that about 10% of that gas ends up on any given star. We think for massive stars, perhaps what's happening is it's, that process is actually slightly more efficient. It's basically sucking in more as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So that might be another difference between massive star formation and how stars like our sun form. Brilliant. Thank you. That's very interesting. Thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks for that, Philippa and Libby. And now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all of those things that we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. So my odd and end this time is about the bushfires that have been sweeping through Australia and there have been many many fires going on because of the the massively dry weather that they've been having out there and one of these fires in particular has gone extremely close to an observatory at Siding Spring and this is this is a pretty famous observatory it houses 12 telescopes um, including Australia's largest optical telescope and the fire has destroyed five of the support buildings, which do things like house astronomers and house control rooms. But currently, it's not thought that the telescopes themselves have received major damage. But being that close to a blaze, they're not sure what effect that will have on the instruments. And, and at the time of recording, a full damage assessment hasn't been made yet. And it's thought that the observatory will be closed for at least two weeks for basically for damage assessment. Everybody at the observatory and the surrounding area was evacuated, so no lives were lost at the observatory. But there have been 33 homes in the nearby vicinity which have been destroyed by the same fire, which is tragic. So it's quite severe then, the fires going through? Yeah, yeah, the fires have been pretty pretty massive. I mean, they're, they're bushfires, so yeah. they can sweep through pretty rapidly on dry material. 
Um, there are a lot of photos and a lot of videos online which we'll link to. Um, and the, obviously, the, so the astronomers, you said they were... Yeah, everybody was evacuated. So, yeah. and they said the astronomers that were there were just watching the webcam footage and crossing their fingers and hoping for the best. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully they'll be able to get online again um, soon enough if there hasn't been any serious damage to the instruments. Well, leaving the Earth now and uh, on a bit of a cheerier note, um, I've found an odd end about uh, a nearby star, and uh, it's it's been found to be one of the oldest stars that we know of. Um, it's about 190 light years away, with the very catchy name of HD 140283. And um, we've, it's been studied for almost a century now. It's been uh, noted and written down. And so that's actually enabled us to uh, determine its age to the best sort of precision yet. The star's age is between 13.2 and 13.9 billion years old, so um, almost as old as the universe. The current accepted age of the universe is around 13.7 billion years, so it's probably not going to be older than that. The astronomers found how old it was by mainly studying the chemical composition of it and also very precisely determining how far away it was. So that led them to the conclusion that uh, it was, in fact, a second-generation star, where the first-generation stars would have been the stars that formed right after the Big Bang, where all this primordial gas would have coalesced into uh, very big and hot stars that sort of exploded quite quickly. And um, when they exploded, they also seeded the universe with the first sort of heavier elements. And traces of these have been found in our in our friend um, HD 140283. Um, <laughs> so catchy. And um, this means that it was it wasn't one of the first stars to form. But since it's so old, uh, that means that after the first stars sort of exploded, uh, it didn't leave much time for the gas to cool to sort of clump into into newer stars. Um, And that's actually uh, quite a new discovery because astronomers previously thought that there would be quite a long cooling period between the first and second generations of stars. So if this star is so old, why is it still here? Because it's it's got that it's managed to keep that fine balance between um, gravitational energy and uh, and burning up all of its fuel, basically. Um, they, we think it's now in the stage where it's used up all of its hydrogen and it's mainly running on helium. But it was sort of the kind of Goldilocks right size for it not to be too big to, to use up all its fuel and collapse uh, or just um, or explode. So it's, it's been going, it's soldiering on for the past uh, 13 point, 13 odd billion years. So my husband piece is on the cosmic microwave background. The cosmic microwave background is like left over from the Big Bang and we've been measuring it with a number of telescopes. And over the past six months, a few of those telescopes have released a new set of data, one of them being uh, WMAP, which is a space telescope, and finally released its nine-year integration results. Uh, It's done some fantastic science in this time, and has been two ground-based telescopes, South Pole Telescope and the Atacama Cosmological Telescope. Uh, These, in combination, have managed to constrain our theory of cosmology down to a cosmology where we have cold dark matter and a cosmological constant. And the real science now is to try and see what happened before energy scales, which we can measure on the Earth. So with CERN, so CERN can measure energy scales in the order of tera-electron volts. And the universe can give us information on energy scales which is much higher and that's where most of the current scientific goals come from uh, from the CMB and so one of the main uh, theories that we're trying to probe is inflation theory 
Inflation theory happened around 10 to the minus, before 10 to the minus 32 seconds after the Big Bang. So it's really early on, and it's a rapid expansion of the universe. And there are a number of theories as to why it happened and other requirements that it should happen. And the, obviously the goal, therefore, is to try and find out which did, if any. So there are a number of ways that we can do this by measuring the cosmic microwave background, by carefully mapping the temperature of it. And these telescopes have done some fantastic work and they've managed to rule out some of the simplest theories and now we're trying to go further. They haven't yet been able to definitely say one is the most preferred because there hasn't been sensitive enough experiments yet. But work is being done and Planck is going to be released soon, so we're all quite excited for that. So Planck's um, going to be like the big data release that people are sort of waiting for. Yeah, that that's nice? coming up soon. Uh, and people are trying to get their papers out saying what they've done so far. And obviously they've done fantastic science. Uh, so we're pretty excited about that. But not as much funding as Planck, but as equally as informative, here's Dr Ian MacDonald answering your astronomical questions. Our first question today comes from John Palmer, who asks, Has the three equal body problem ever been solved mathematically yet? A recent TV documentary discussing gravity assist missions implied that computer simulations and graph paper were still needed. Well, we usually dispense with the graph paper these days, but the computer simulations are very definitely still required. Now, a little background for the everyday listener here. We'll start off with a two-body problem. No giggling at the back there. The two-body problem states that if you have two objects orbiting each other, like the Earth and the Moon, the motion can be described by a single equation, so the Moon orbits the Earth in an ellipse. The two-body problem was solved by Johann Kepler in the 17th century, so we've known about it for quite a while. But what happens if you introduce a third body? Well, mathematically speaking, the system becomes chaotic, and each body's orbit can't be simply described by a single equation. So you can't predict exactly where the body will be at any point in time simply by putting numbers into equations. You actually have to follow each body and compute how the gravity of the other two bodies pulls on it. So there'll never be an algebraic solution to the three-body problem. But that's not to say that we don't know what's going to happen. After all, we know the moon goes around the Earth once every month and the Earth goes around the sun once every year. More accurately, the moon and the Earth orbit each other around the centre of mass and the Earth and the sun orbit each other too but we'll ignore this detail for the moment. But that's good enough for everyday work. However, if you're sending a spacecraft up there, you'll need to be rather more precise than that. If you're going to land a probe on the moon, it's no good being out by a few hundred miles. So what this simple view ignores is the fact that the sun also pulls in the moon, and that distorts its orbit slightly. It's not enough to be very obvious if you're just standing on Earth, but the effect is there nonetheless, and that makes its orbit impossible to solve with algebra alone. If you're sending probes to other planets, there's a whole heap of other things you need to worry about. You need to worry about the gravity of all the planets, and sometimes a few of the asteroids too. For example, the pull of Jupiter's gravity on the Earth is about 0.6% of the moon's, and that's enough to raise tides for a few centimetres in the oceans. So if you're sending probes out, what you thought was a three-body problem might easily become a 13-body problem, or even worse. Now fortunately, systems like the 13-body problem are quite trivial for a computer to solve over the lifetime of a spacecraft. There are entire systems such as NASA Horizons that are dedicated to doing just that. So it's much easier than fiddling around with slide rules and graph paper like in the old days. Turns out that modern rocket science isn't that hard after all. Excellent, excellent. 
Now, our second question comes from Andrew Horner, who asks, how does a planet with four suns have an apparently stable orbit? Well, the planet in question here is PH1. It's a planet announced in October, and has been discovered by members of the public. It's orbiting a stellar system that's been monitored by the Kepler satellite, and that's got the romantic name of KIC 4862625. The system has four stars, and we now know at least one planet. Now, we heard in the last question that all the planets in the solar system pull on each other and slightly destabilise each other's orbits. If we were to replace three of the planets in the solar system with normal stars, it would wreak merry havoc and throw all the other planets out into space. So how can a planet with four suns have a stable orbit? Well, for example, man-made satellites can orbit the Earth in circular orbits, because to them the Earth looks like a sphere. Well, we know that's not quite true. The Earth's a bit more interesting than that. It's got mountains and other bumps and things like that. But satellites don't really care about that. They're in almost circular orbits because the Earth is very close to spherical. Satellites stay in those orbits and aren't pulled out by the Moon or other planets because the Earth's gravity is that much stronger. Everything else is too far away or too small for them to care about. That's also true for these four stars. The stars are in two pairs. Now the first pair orbit each other every 20 days or so, and this is the pair that the planet goes around. The stars are close enough together that the planet only sees them as one object, and it goes around in a nearly circular orbit. The second pair of stars orbits each other every few hundred years, but they're separated from the first pair of stars by about a thousand times the distance between the Earth and the Sun, a thousand AU. And the two pairs take many thousands of years to go around each other, so the second pair of stars are simply too far away for the planet to care about. Now, if you find this scenario a little difficult to follow and appreciate it's not very good just coming through an audio channel, then try this. If you were to put a spacecraft in orbit around both Pluto and Charon, it could orbit quite happily. Pluto and Charon are close enough together that the spacecraft only sees them as one object, as far as gravity is concerned, anyway. But that spacecraft won't really care about the Earth and the Moon, because they're so far away. The combined gravity of Pluto and Charon will be much greater. Despite there being four big chunks of rock to worry about here, the spacecraft can still happily only orbit two of them. And more generally, some orbits are stable, and some aren't. But basically, if you can treat the thing that you're orbiting as one object, and you aren't pulled up too much by other objects, then you're in a stable orbit. Our final question comes from Margaret Feaster, who asks, Venus lost its water due to evaporation. How much of the lost water from Venus ended up on Earth? If you've been watching Tim, Brian and Dara on Stargazing Live, you'll know that planets that are too hot, like Venus, or planets that are too small or have no magnetic field, like Mars, have lost most of their water because it evaporates off into space. And we think that all terrestrial planets in the solar system started out with atmospheres that are mainly hydrogen and helium, but that these were rapidly lost as the planets evolved. Venus and Mars also lost the nitrogen and water, and their oxygen was rapidly turned to carbon dioxide, leaving them with the atmospheres we see today. Now, working out how much water Venus started out with is actually quite tricky. We don't really know how much there was, but probably only enough to make it slightly damp, maybe the equivalent of covering it to a few metres in depth. Now, that makes a million cubic kilometres of water, and that sounds a lot, but it's an awful lot less than the billion cubic kilometres of water in the Earth's oceans. That water evaporated off Venus fairly quickly, over the first few hundred million years. So there wasn't really an awful lot of water on Venus to start off with. But we can still ask how much of that ended up on Earth. Now, gases escaping from planets are typically blown away from the planet by the solar wind, very much like the tail of a comet. 
So, a fair amount of Venus's lost water would cross the Earth's orbit as it's blown from the Sun, but quite a lot would also go above and below our orbit. The Earth's gravity is fairly weak, so anything that doesn't actually hit us will just pass us by. Rather less than a millionth of the material that is ejected from Venus would impact the Earth. So, from your million cubic kilometres of water that were ejected from Venus originally, maybe rather less than one cubic kilometre would have made it to Earth. Maybe enough to fill a small reservoir. We don't know exactly where the water on Earth today came from, how much of it was part of Earth to begin with, and how much came from other sources. But it's probable that at least some of it came from ice-rich comets early on in the Earth's history. So next time you turn on the tap and take a drink, remember, you're drinking well-filtered comet juice. Thank you very much for all those brilliant answers, and if you have any questions that you want answering, send them in by all the usual channels. Thanks for that, Ian and Christina. Now we'll move on to some of your feedback. First off, we've got a couple of emails. Uh, hello to John Palmer, who sent us an email about his 60-year interest in theoretical ast- astronomy and the changes he's seen. And Lindsay, who says, I'm really enjoying the Jodcast. Informative, relaxed, and well-presented. Ideal for a long commute. Keep it up. Thanks, Lindsay. Hopefully we can uh, brighten up many of your future commutes. And on Facebook, Tony Angels got in touch. I always look forward to listening to the latest podcast. Congratulations on reaching seven, Smiley. And thanks to all our well-wishers on the forum, wishing us a happy seventh birthday. And on Twitter, thanks for all the tweets, retweets and follow Fridays. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. The forum at forum.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts, and the address for that is on the website. So all that's left to say now is thanks to Peter Wilkinson and Stuart Lumsden for the interviews. The editors were Christina Smith, Sally Cooper and Indy Leclerc, and the producer was Dan Thornton. So until next time... Jod on! Bye!